Welcome to this week's podcast. I'm Mickey Badlamenti, discipleship pastor here at Rock Point Community Church. Our goal in the messages we share is to consistently present God's truth in ways that will challenge you, bring you new perspective, and ultimately lead you into closer relationship with God through Jesus Christ. Wherever you're listening from, we hope this message encourages you in your faith. We also welcome you to visit us anytime you're in the Detroit area. Our Sunday services are at 9 and 11 a.m. and include a full range of children's programs, as well as a ministry specifically for children with special needs. Find us on Facebook or visit our website at rockpoint.org for more information. We are partway through a series entitled The Binding, and it's in reference to book binding. Um, this past season of time, a Bible I'd had for decades had slowly fallen apart. Uh, pages were coming out. I tried using duct tape to fix it for a number of years. didn't work beyond that. So it actually occasionally been pulled off just for reference, sat on my shelf. Then this past season of time, um, I found I could have it rebound for just about 55 bucks or so. And so I had what was the original Bible rebound, and so it's not just got a fresh cover on it, um, and the duct tape is gone. Um, but the pages are attached in a way that they weren't before. And so I have all the original notes and history that's here, but in a fresh binding that keeps it stronger and more together and more effective for my use. In the same way, we're looking at ourselves as a church to take certain things that have been of value over the years and to maintain those in this new time but also to have a fresh binding, something that connects us more closely together. And so these first four have been on those things that have bound us in the past. Next four will be on those things that will bind us going forward. And on those things that have bound us in the past, I've used several images to connect and give you some background, especially if you haven't had history here. First one was this one here, and uh, uh, I'm not going to go into the details of what each one involved. You can look up the uh, podcast in regards to it but that had to do with Christ. The next one had to do with the statue that you see outside there. The original version is about this big. Uh, we had permission from the artist to create the one that we did. And then the last one of last week was um, the fountain, which represented community, each stone and a matrix coming together. The one I want to kind of highlight for you today in the last of these images is one that you probably have um, not noticed, actually. Uh, it's one that originally was on the outside of the original building when we moved here from Plumbrook, and it was uh, in 1983. And this stone, this cornerstone, this, this um, stone of some type was on the outside, dedication stone was on the outside as you would come in the uh, church. We moved it when everything else was done and placed it inside so we would not forget. It says what? God. Yep, extra credit, 1983. Okay. So to the glory of God. That's what I want to talk to you about today, the glory of God. Subject title is high praise. We'll expand on that a bit. But at the core of this has to do with the glory of God. When I was in college years ago, um, I was studying something else at the time, but it was required to take Bible courses where I was at. And uh, one of the courses I had was uh, several, actually, under an old pastor. Um, he was ancient. The guy was at least 60, I realize now. And... Uh, um, and he was a tall slat of a guy. He looked like he came out of Kentucky somewhere, one of those, uh, uh, you know, mountaineer-type guys. And uh, he had these thick glasses, and his name was Bashford Bishop. And he had this gravelly voice, and there's a lot of things that he taught, but I remember one thing stuck in my mind particularly. 
he's that there because some of those that were in that class were heading towards ministry. And, and, uh, and so he would say to them in his voice, he'd say, boys, I want to tell you there's three things to remember. Just three things. One, don't touch the gold. Don't touch the girls. And don't touch the glory of God. That would be the voice I'd hear for an hour. <laughs> the first two have gotten a lot of press over the years um, as people have uh, fallen over the issue of finances or sexuality or things of this nature. But the third one has been drastically overlooked within the church. As we talk about a continuation of knowing Christ at the center of our community, knowing not only the work he's done on the cross, but also his character, his very nature, and how that then brings us into salvation, but he doesn't just leave us there. He, he begins to transform us, sanctify every part of our lives. So every part of our life eventually recognizes him as Lord. And then he places us in communities to help take the rough edges off and to shape us and define us even more. And as those things come into play, there's now this one here today about touching the glory of God, though. Nicole Nordeman is um, an artist. We actually mentioned one of her songs recently, River God. She was receiving a Dove Award, a Christian Music Award. When she approached the microphone, she said this, quote, I don't know how I feel about receiving an award for a gift that has come from God. In essence, what she was saying is, I can't take credit for my beautiful singing voice, my songs, all the creativity I have. They are gifts that did not originate with me. We are increasingly a church in America that glorifies giftings and overlooks character. We have increasingly a worldly perspective about those things. And so we tend to lift up heroes and, and people that should never have been lifted up into these high places, not because they were not worthy per se, but because it touches upon the glory of God when those gifts are used in that way and draw attention to self and not to God. And so we have celebrity pastors. We have celebrity churches. We increasingly get caught up with what is increasingly called a popularity gospel and not recognize the heresy inside that. Not recognizing that all gifts come from God, whether it's preaching, teaching, singing, writing, prophesying, working miracles, administrative gifts, intercession. None of these things are stuff that we can take credit for. Your ability to work a lathe, your ability to knit, your ability to create in whatever form you do and whatever work that you do, all those things ultimately come from God. Rick Joyner made the statement, there is no greater fall than to use the things of God to draw worship or devotion to yourself rather than to God. There is no greater fall. Another writer said that when we use the things God has given us to draw people to ourselves, we have become, in fact, at that point in time, spiritual prostitutes. Harsh language. Intense. Let's take this apart a bit biblically. Um, in Isaiah chapter 42, verse 8, the passage that Bashford would read to us is, I am the Lord, that is my name. I will not yield my glory to another or my praise to idols. God has a sense of, of glory. There's a sense of holiness or rightness or goodness that is so pure, so complete, so total in the nature of God that it's not an arrogance to say that that would not be given to another. It is, in fact, a distortion of reality to see that happen or take place. There's more to this chapter that you should read, and we'll touch on it briefly in this conversation. But just this passage alone, I am the Lord, that's my name. I'll not yield my glory to another or my praise to idols. 
in books, I, I love a really good book. Uh, I, I love beautifully bound ones like these that, that I was given years ago and the gold filigree that's on it and all the markings of which we saw just a snapshot of it up there. I also like old beat up paperbacks that I don't have to worry about too much. These I don't take out too often. And so I value each one of those, but there is a, a, a something beautiful for those of you that are readers of just holding a really well-bound book and feeling the tightness of the pages and, and how it flows together. And the gold, though, that's on this is not meant to draw attention to itself. It's meant to glorify the author of the book. It's meant to honor what's going there, to draw our eyes inward, not just to the exterior. That may catch our original attention, but it's intended to draw us inward and to honor the author. If you'll read books at all, then you'll notice if you look at some of the, the back pages, they'll have endorsements. They'll have things that essentially lift up the author or his work. This one's Jerusalem in the 20th Century by Martin Gilbert. And in this one, it says that uh, his mastery of the source material and his artful use of these materials provide a riveting, charming, and moving account, proving that Mr. Gilbert is not only a first-rate historian, but a good storyteller, the Washington Times. Now, this is one that you have to read, and I know you're going to rush out right afterwards. This one is the Peloponnesian War. And I know you're going to want this one by Donald Kagan. There's nothing like a war that was fought over 3,000 years ago to really get you rolling, guys, okay? And here, Bernard Levin of the London Times highlights and praises this author. He says, it's impossible to skip. It's so monomaniacally complete, so beautifully told, so wisely understood. And he goes on and on. And then he, he says, in searching for words, now you need to understand this next part. There's a guy named Thucydides who was like the first historian ever. And he was in Greece and he was actually part of this war in the time he's talking about. And so you all understand it going on. So in searching for words with which to praise Professor Kagan as highly as he deserves, I cannot do better than to say that although the great shadow of Thucydides must have been looking over his shoulder throughout when Professor Kagan wrote, the end, the shadow nodded in admiration. <laughs> I think this guy's in love with Professor Kagan. <laughs> High praise to say that, that this historian, this writer of the Peloponnesian War, has, has captured the essence of one of the greatest historians of all time and of all place. These things were written to give us a sense and to honor and to lift up or to praise the author of the book. The, the, the writer themselves is irrelevant of the praise point. It's who the author is that the praise and the honor and glory is going to. And we get confused by that. We have our gifts and our abilities, and they bring us attention. They can bring us position. They can bring us influence. And somehow at the end of the day, we think it's because of us. We get confused in the same way as something that happened in 1945. A lot of the great baseball players and stars had gone off to fight the war. In 1945, these guys came streaming back, including my own father. And while I'm not a big baseball guy, I know enough to know that Joe DiMaggio was one of the greatest players of all time and one of the most beloved players. And so when he came back after fighting the war in 1945, before he rejoined uh, um, the legendary Yankees, his team, he just wanted to be Joe uh, the fan. And so he tried to slip in quietly with his four-year-old son, Joe Jr., into Yankee Stadium just to take in the game. 
Well, you can figure out what happened quickly. I mean, people next to him say, is that Joe DiMaggio? That's Joe DiMaggio. Isn't that Joe DiMaggio? That's Joe DiMaggio. That's Joe DiMaggio. And the whole crowd started at one time to say, Joe, 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 Joe DiMaggio. Joe, 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 Joe DiMaggio. And, and Joe DiMaggio was so overcome by this act of love and adoration and care. With tears in his eyes, he turned to his younger son, Joe Jr., just to see how he was taking it in. And Joe Jr. looks up at his dad and said, Dad, they all know me and they all love me. In the same way, our Father's standing behind us and we do some minor lifted little gifting or ability and people shout praise and we think it's all about us. And we forget where that DNA, where those giftings, where those abilities even came from. In Romans chapter 1, it says, For since the creation of the world, God's invisible qualities, His eternal power, divine nature, has been clearly seen being understood from what has been made so that people are without excuse. If you're still searching about the things of God, you need to understand that God has been speaking to you from the beginning of your birth, that all of universe, all of creation expresses who he is so that we have no excuse. And Paul goes on and says, for all they, though they knew God, they neither glorified him as God nor gave thanks to him, but their thinking became futile and their foolish hearts were darkened. And although they claimed to be wise, they became fools and exchanged the glory of the immortal God. For images made to look like a mortal human being, birds and animals and reptiles. Let's take the first portion of this and expand it through Psalm 19.1, where it says, The heavens declare the glory of God. The skies proclaim the work of his hands. The very universe that we're in. David, the psalmist, a, a, a guy who would have spent his evenings out on the hillside watching over the sheep in a time before light pollution, this guy would have had the clearest vision possible that we can't even imagine the time of the stars spread out and the galaxy and the, the glory of that. If any of you have ever gotten a chance to get outside of Detroit, you really need to get out. But if you get up north or you get into a place or up on Mauna Kea or some of these other places with clear vision and no light pollution, it is stunning. It's almost startling. It's almost scary, the depth and beauty that is out there. And it's with that in mind, I think, that David is writing this eighth psalm, and he goes on from this heavens declaring the glory of God. He goes on to saying, Lord, our God, how majestic, how glorious, how incredible is your name in all the earth. He's, he's writing an endorsement here. You've set your glory in the heavens, and when I consider your heavens, the work of your fingers, the moon and the stars, which you have set in place. What is mankind? What is mankind that you are mindful of them, of us, human beings that you care for us? You have made us little lower than the angels and crowned us with glory and honor and you've made us rulers over the works of your hands. You put everything under our feet. And he goes on to list the, the different things that we've had dominion over and then he finishes off the chapter by saying, Lord, our Lord, how majestic is your name in all the earth. But we've rejected that glory in our society and oftentimes, I think, by default within the church itself. And so we turn to the created things, the very things that he's created that, that bless us, and we exalt and lift up those things, other people's giftings, this cult of popularity that we have, not just in the church, that's only borrowed from culture. The more outrageous somebody does something or the, the better they do it, the more press and the more likes and the more clicks and, and we get caught with this cult of popularity. 
And so we begin to lift those people or those things or those institutions even up. We forget what shaped and what created and what made those things. Every single one of you in this room right now have a gift. Every single one of you have an ability. It is different than the persons next to you, probably so. All of us have those. What do we do with those gifts? And what do we do when we gain attention or influence? If someone talks to me after a communication and they say to me, that ministered to me or that particularly had an impact on me, but thank you for that communication. When that's done, I don't have a problem with the receiving of encouragement. We all need that. I, I, I'll do that anytime. We, we need to do that. But I find most times I'll say, yeah, we have a great team that helps us, and I try to point to others in the process. I don't mind the encouragement, but I do not want to take any of the glory. So often today when that's being said, even on the pastoral level, it's only to draw more attention to the person's humility and that they don't want the glory. I'm not saying that today. I'm saying generally, I don't want that glory that is God's. Encouragement, yes, but not touching that. And not just because some ancient guy told me in a schoolroom years ago, don't touch the glory of God in a wavering hillbilly voice. But because I read in scripture about the glory of God, and it awestrucks me. I read of Isaiah watching the train of God's robe filling the temple and the angels singing holy, holy, and until it just completely destroys Isaiah's mind and he says, woe unto me. I see a guy that's, 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 that's trailing along behind the Ark of the Covenant, the very presence of God embodied that they were told, do not touch it because it's holy, and it starts to tip and it's going to fall over and touch the ground, and so he reaches out to, to, to adjust it and it's struck dead, and we say, what is that about? And as one writer has said, that man Uzzah thought that he was more righteous than the ground, and he was wrong. To touch the glory of God and attempt to correct something in that moment of time. The vanity, the blindness. In culture, I understand it. But within the church... within spiritual leaders, allegedly, within those who are calling themselves the people of God, I don't understand. Psalm 115, the psalmist is impassioned in his repetition. He says, not to us, Lord. And he repeats it, not to us. It's an it's a imploring, not to us, Lord, not to us, but to your name be the glory because of your love and your faithfulness. We don't want to touch your glory. We don't want to do any kind of a glory grab and say, oh, we did. How many times have people gotten in trouble just plagiarizing? They're using words out of books that someone else wrote and passing them off as their own so that people think they're sharp or they're clever. But they're stealing the glory of the original artist and the original writer. This is why in proper academic circles, we cite who we are repeating because we don't want to steal their glory or take what is theirs? Recognition appropriate. Glory, no. I don't know if you read an article recently. 
There's an article on the Osborne community on the 9320205. If you guys have, sorry, I'm grabbing there, 48205. If you guys haven't read it, you need to check it out. It's saying that there's been a significant change in that zip code and in the Osborne community. And it's attributed in part blight removal, which many of you guys have either done or contributed to. It's also citing certain block clubs that we've come alongside and encouraged that are coming alongside and there's something rising up within the community and they're saying there's a radical difference between what used to be referred to, they said, as the 4820 die because it was so violent instead of the 48205 and that there's some hope and there's something breathing in. Now, have we alone been responsible for that? No, but we've been a significant part of it. There's nothing wrong with being aware of that and I applaud you guys for that engagement but the glory of that, the real recognition, is if that will point any of people that we're in contact with to God ultimately and to his spirit shaping this, of which we're just the tools for that end. This is a point in a church that had a significantly different mix. There'd be an amen at that point. So let me back that one up a little bit. That whatever we have done in the 48205, Anything that has been actually achieved in that area is by God's grace and the glory goes to him. Yeah. We'll work on it, but that's a good start. <laughs> Our friends in Costa Rica, there was a fire that broke out in the barrios 10 minutes from their church. I told you guys about this. 200 adults lost everything. 100 children lost everything. And so Miguel and Karina had contacted us we had several thousand dollars came in, and so we contacted. I had Rob contact down there and say, hey, we're going to be sending $3,000 down to you. More came in. We spent over $4,000 down to them. And that's great. And that's a ministry. But you know what? I will lay odds. I will bet you that not one of those kids in the barrio or one of those adults that's being ministered will hear our name ever. Karina and Miguel know about it. But I doubt they're going to make a point of saying, hey, this is the blessings of Rock Point Community Church in a place that you have no understanding or care or concern whatsoever about and that's thousands of miles away from you. God bless you. <laughs> they're going to say, this is the gift of God. This is by God's grace. You are loved by God. All glory be to God. A friend of mine just came out of surgery the other day and her husband texted me and said how she was doing better than even thought of and then ended it with glory be to God. We have a stone that's on that wall that we walk past all the time that's saying, to the glory of God. This is what not only as a church, but this is what we're supposed to be doing as individuals. Psalm 34-3 here says, glorify the Lord with me. Let us exalt his name together. Glorify the Lord with me. Let's do this together. How do we glorify God? Part of it's how we just, we were singing, we were in worship. When Jake actually began to clap on a beat, you guys actually clapped for a portion of that time on that one song. And 95% of you were on beat, which is amazing. <laughs> and the other 5%, there are blessings and honor for you anyways, all right? When we do those things together in worship and song, another thing I thought would never happen in this church, just thought would never happen. I am honestly amazed and, and, and encouraged we started talking a couple of weeks ago about changing culture and just coming early if you can, or at the very least, on time in the service. I got to tell you, first service has beaten you guys out pretty badly. Another subject I won't get into right now. But, but you guys have actually made an effort to do that, and there's a significant portion of people that are being here 
on time and, and those who particularly are holy, even early. And there are those of us who are late. And, and a lot of times, like I say, we give grace for that. Don't ever not come in late. We know that there's children. We know that there's nuclear disasters. We know that there's tornadoes, all of which are the same thing, incidentally. Um, and that happened to you, and you have to address that. And we understand that. So don't worry about coming late. But for those making an effort to change and to create something as we gather here together, our showing up honors him. Our finances and where we direct those things honor him. All these things are towards God's glory and not our own. The Westminster Confession or Catechism, a 350-year-old confession of faith, has this statement. It says, the man's chief end is to glorify God and to enjoy him forever. And that forever means at all times, not just eternity, but, but at all times to, to glorify God, enjoy him forever. That's what we're supposed to do. That's our calling as people. In 1963, Martin Luther King wrote a book called Strength to Love. In this, ironically, he references a work of his namesake, Martin Luther, the original reformer. So Martin Luther King Jr. writing a book, quoting now at this part, Martin Luther, who had written something hundreds of years earlier, who said this, the works of monks and priests, however holy and arduous they may be, do not differ one whit in the sight of God from the works of the rustic laborer in the field or the woman going about her household tasks. But all works are measured before God by faith alone. He takes the contrast of that time period, priests were highly elevated and, and, and all, to the lower end. He's saying that what, what determines whether they're being effective or getting honored before God is the degree to which they're exercising that in faith. In other words, to which degree are they consciously trying to do this as a reflection of God's grace in their own lives. In other words, writes Martin Luther King Jr. now in his book, consider a comparison between a priest who fulfills his clerical duties without faith. He's just going through the motions, just doing his thing. No real conscious thought behind it. Just one more boring day, hearing confession, doing the rest of what's supposed to do, speaking, teaching, all the rest. But considered so important by everyone else. And a peasant who boorishly just painfully tills the soil and does his work, but he does it in faith. He does it with an awareness of God's grace in his life, with an awareness of how he's been enabled to do this, with an idea of, of somehow glorifying God in that work. In this instant, only the peasant, he writes, would be fulfilling his calling and stewarding the gifts that God had granted to him. Only one person is finding favor in God's sight and being used as God's instrument of provision for the community, and it is not the priest, he says. It's the laborer goes on to say this final statement, therefore Luther, the original, would exhort us to remove the word just from the description of our jobs and everyday tasks. The housewife is not just a housewife, but the one divinely called to shepherd and care for the home and family. The stockbroker is not just a stockbroker, but the one entrusted by God with the long-term financial provision of his people. The sanitation worker is not just a trash man or just a janitor, but the one called to care for the beautiful world that God had created. Whatever job you have, whatever role in life you have, remove the just out of it. If you're doing it in faith before God, if you're doing it as a way of drawing attention to him and glorifying him or just living it out faithfully before his faith, face, then you're operating in a way of grace and honor and glorifying God. 
I have no bumper stickers on my car. I will never have a bumper sticker on my car. I try to not have anything that will actually readily even identify me on my car. There's a reason for that. Now, there's been one exception only, and that was when one of my dear children stuck a magnet on the back of my car that I didn't recognize for two days was there because it was gray and blended in, and it said, I heart cats. We have a vacancy in our family. <laughs> I'll be honest, one of the reasons why I don't have anything on there, or I haven't in the past at least, is because I would see so many ridiculously stupid drivers out there and I'd see their bumper stickers about love and grace after they just cut me off in traffic and it made me crazy. But then I also checked out myself and I thought, I don't want anybody that's ever going to identify my car at all. <laughs> Some things we do we recognize, do not bring honor and glory to God. And those things need to be redeemed. Those things are in that transformational area of sanctification where we need to bring those before him and, and operate in community and, and see our driving redeemed. <laughs> see, other things need to be changed. But all these other things that we come before God that we're to offer to him, in Matthew chapter 5, Jesus put it this way. In the same way, let your light shine before others that they may see your good deeds. And then what? Okay, I, mean, I, I, I snuck up on you that one. I snuck up on it. I know, I'm just, some of you are just drifty and you weren't reading and I, you're just listening and I, I'm sorry. Let me back it up, give you a chance. I want, I want you to have a chance because God's watching you and this was going to go down in history and you're going to stand before God and he's not going to let you in just because you screwed up the scripture. So we're going to back this up, okay, because it's Jesus speaking here, guys, okay, it's Jesus. Matthew chapter 5, verse 16, and it says, in the same way, let your light shine before others that they may see your good deeds and what? Father in heaven. I do these good deeds to draw attention to myself? No. We do these deeds, we're supposed to, so that they would glorify. Do you know that one of the ways that God's glorified? That you add his glory is by your work and your efforts, what you do. When we properly honor and don't get caught up with a Joe DiMaggio Jr. and think it's all about us, but instead realize the cheers are really for God and direct it that way. Luke 17, 10, Jesus says to you also, when you've done everything you were told to do, that you're supposed to do, just a servant, we should say we are unworthy servants. We've only done our duty. We only did what we're supposed to do. And so 1 Corinthians, uh, Paul says, so whether you eat or drink or whatever you do, do it all for the glory of God. Everything we do is supposed to be for the glory of God. Do it all. In a moment's time, we're going to take of communion together. And ours is an open communion. Anyone here that you're a follower of Christ can take it. If you're not, then we just ask that you just let it pass you by. No, no stress. As we take of this communion, it takes us back to that very first conversation we had of Christ and, and his work and then his very nature and his character and how after that moment of salvation, he's working in us, still sanctifying us and transforming us and things are coming under submission increasingly as we trust him, that we're plugged into community with one another to rub off those rough edges, to be aligned one to another, to encourage each other and to be changed and transformed. So what? That we all may together glorify the Lord and give him glory and honor and praise. Whenever we take that which is his upon ourself, 
or even for an entity like a church, we arrogate something to ourselves that is not to be touched. Don't touch the glory of God. Kurt Vonnegut, in his work, Timequake, has a series of stories about people who've lost control of their lives. Rather than determine their own destinies, the characters in the book are involved in a time quake, kind of a time loop, where they're forced to repeat the same bad choices over and over again without the possibility for improvement or redemption at all. When the time quake finally ends and people once again have the chance to live their own lives out, most people are gripped by what Vonnegut wrote as a post-time quake apathy or PTA, a condition that keeps people immobilized by the despair of what they've just come out of. One of the main characters is a guy named Kilgore Trout. He's the only one who isn't gripped by the uh, state of apathy. Towards the end of the story, he tries to revive others by repeating this motto to them. You were sick, but now you're well, and there's work to do. You were sick, but now you're well, and there's work to do. You were sick, but now you're well, and there's work to do. This fits perfectly within the realm of Christianity. God in his infinite love does not just save us, clean us, and then dump us. He saves us. He cleans us. He places us in community. And then he says, look it, you were sick, but now you're well, and there's work to be done. And that work is his work. And that work is to encourage and to lift up the name of Christ in every way possible by praise of songs and worship and adoration, by our finances, but also by our very giftings and our very lives. And if you get a little bit too bent on this whole glory thing, then I want to bring something that maybe as we close this will catch your attention a bit. In that 42nd chapter that we started off with, where he's saying, it's my glory and I'll not share that with another, you have to understand part of what his glory means is his perfectness, his righteousness, his goodness, his character, his nature shines like the purest of gold in the darkness. So what does he do with all that? Like Midas sit in the corner and just count all the praises and the worship? The 42nd chapter that this thing is rooted in talks about Christ coming, God in the flesh, the glory of God revealed in man, and says, here is my servant, verse 1, whom I uphold, my chosen one, in whom I delight. I'll put my spirit on him, and he'll bring justice to the nations. He will not shout or cry out or raise his voice in the streets. Jesus never drew attention to himself. It was always to the Father that he gave glory. A bruised reed, one of my favorite passages, he will not break. Smoldering wick, he will not snuff out. In faithfulness, he'll bring forth justice. He will not falter or be discouraged until he establishes justice on the earth. And then it goes on later in the chapter to say, to open eyes that are blind, to free captives from prison, to release from the dungeon those who sit in darkness. And then it says, I am the Lord. That is my name. I will not yield my glory to another or my praise to idols. This is a God who is beyond comprehension in his glory and his goodness and his rightness. And he uses all of that to love and care and reach out to you and to me and then through us to reach out and care and love others in his name to God be the glory. Oh, you are getting so good. 
You are, because that was a good one. That was not the one that should have been shouted and screamed. That is the one that should have been said as thoughtfully as you just did. That was great. That was great. You sat there and you thought and you said, and you couldn't help yourself, could you? There was just, to God be the glory, amen. Amen. Four things that have bound us in the past that we are not letting go of. The nature and work of Christ and his very character. Transformation through the process of the Holy Spirit and sanctification. Being in community with one another where the edges are trimmed and where we're aligned and where the old bindings are cut away and new bindings are formed one to another. For what purpose? To give glory to God. To be an extension of his grace. So as you go to work this week, do it to the glory of God. When you go into your home and you deal with that that spouse who is so difficult to deal with and they're thinking it's you and you're thinking it's them, think, how can I bring God, how can I bring this to God's glory in this moment? When you're working on the line, Ford Chrysler GM, when it gets over with, when you're in the hospital and you're exhausted, from 18 hours straight, but there's one more person that needs you. As a people, we've been given so much. We do all now to the glory of God. As we take of this communion, we only ask one thing, is that you'd hold it so that we can all take of it together. And as we prepare for this, I would encourage you to process and remove the just in front of whatever your work or your role or your assignment is and submit that thing to God and see if you don't look at what you're doing through different eyes. And so, Father, as we come forward in this time, teach us, instruct us, draw us, Lord God, and above all, let us not touch your glory at all, Lord, but but let us honor you in what we do. Speak to us by your Spirit in this moment, I pray in Jesus' name. One of the ancient church fathers said the glory of God is to see man fully alive. Jesus gathers with his disciples and hours before he's going to go uh, into the garden. He's fully God, but he's also fully man. He has no desire to go through this torture, the heartache it's going to cause friends and, and all the rest. But to the glory of the Father, he submits. He takes that ancient ritual that the Jews had practiced for hundreds and thousands of years already. That Passover meal that meant liberation from Egypt. And he takes that and uses it now in a new way. Actually completes what it originally was intended for. He takes the piece of bread and breaks it and says, this is my body broken for you. It's a sacrifice. The final one. The perfect lamb. So God, we come before you, our Heavenly Father. In our brokenness, Lord God, you restored us. You didn't see just this person or just that person. You see each person in utter clarity and you remove the just, not just from our roles, but from our personhood so that we are of value to you. So we thank you. We thank you. Amen. Shall we take together? 
took a cup and he filled it with wine. He said, this is my blood shed for you. This is the blood of the lamb perfectly that was spread over the doorposts so that angel of death passed over. Only now is the perfect sacrifice, not over and over again, never again will it be offered again in the, in the, in the, in the temple for any purposes that would have actual meaning. It's once and for all paid for with Christ. Lord, it is by your blood shed that we are saved. Your grace just freely given to us, Lord, along with all the various giftings. God, let us ever be conscious of this, I pray, ever conscious, and we give you glory and honor this day. In Jesus' name, amen, shall we? binding, the gold embossing on this is beautiful. I love just the feel of it. But how stupid it would be if I never looked at the book or got acquainted with the author and just got dwelling on this or put it in a picture frame somewhere. That's not the purpose. Our actions, our lives are meant to be that gold little embossing that draws attention to Christ, that draws glory to God. We're going to have those available around front here if you'd like prayer, as is our tradition. Um, otherwise, we'll be exiting out of here in just a moment's time. What we just finished with is the easy part, folks. These four. These next four are going to be difficult. They're going to be tough. Father, I, I pray that you'd open our mind and heart as we go out into this world today and that we see things through the lens of your grace and that everything we would do, everything we would do, everything we would do would be done to the glory of God. Amen.